Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. On today's episode, we chat with Hillary McClinton and Nicole Shallow from Healthy Sleep Solutions. Hillary is a board-certified behavior analyst, currently serving a second term on the BC Association for Behavior Analysis Board as treasurer. She is a registered autism service provider in British Columbia, and she completed her master's in special education at the University of British Columbia and completed a therapist-level Early Start Denver Model Certification. Hillary has worked within the autism community of British Columbia for more than 20 years in a variety of positions and settings. Her experience began in home and clinical residential settings. She started focusing on home-based support, providing consultation to schools, and presenting in the community on various topics. From there, she gained further expertise in the development and training of individualized behavior support plans in the home, with an emphasis on early childhood development and goodness of fit. Hillary's practice now focuses on working with families in their homes on practical solutions for meaningful change, specializing in infant-toddler intervention. Adding pediatric sleep to her expertise has been a huge asset, both with sleep in her own home and those of the families she serves. Nicole Shallow is a board-certified behavior analyst, and she has a master's in special education with a concentration in autism and developmental disabilities from the University of British Columbia. She is also a Category A registered autism service provider in British Columbia, as well as a member of the BC ABBA board, where she is the membership representative. Nicole has been supporting families and children within the autism community for almost eight years. She began her journey as a behavior interventionist and fell in love with the tools applied behavior analysts had to offer to change families' lives forever. She'll be forever grateful for the dedicated parent that recommended she start in the field. Nicole's private practice has become more focused on empowering families to be a part of developing and implementing practical solutions to help improve overall quality of life. With a history of her own sleep struggles, she has found it so humbling to be able to know that she is providing families with the tools to support their child towards the goal of independent and healthy sleep. All right, welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. Really excited today to have uh, two of my colleagues from the, the BC ABBA board, as well as partners in uh, an agency called Healthy Sleep Solutions. Uh, we have uh, Hillary McClinton, who uh, we're also speaking to on another episode uh, about mentorship, uh, and Nicole Shallow. Uh, thanks for coming on, you two. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Absolutely. Super excited about this. Sleep is a huge thing. I'm super interested in this. I'm hoping to get a few tips. I had a, a, a kind of a sketchy sleep last night myself, so maybe uh, you guys can uh, help me out with uh, fixing up some of those pieces. Um, maybe if we could get started uh, by just talking a little bit um, about kind of how each of you got in the field uh, kind of separately and then how you guys kind of came together to, to form this new venture. Sure. Hillary, do you want to go? Okay. <laughs> this is a problem when I can't see this. So funny. Um, yeah, sure. I'll go first. I'm a board certified behavior analyst. I've been board certified for about two years almost now. It's time to renew my CEUs and all that. And I got in the field. I kind of fell into it like most people do. Craigslist ad popped up. It was related to my psychology degree. So I started. I didn't know about behavior analysts at first because on the team that I did start with there was none 
Um, but then I found some amazing ones along the way, and Hillary was one of them. Uh, and we, we've been working together for a long time now. I'd say almost mm-hmm. five years, maybe. Um, yep. oh, wow. Yeah. I started as a BI, a behavior interventionist, and then worked through my mm-hmm. whole practicum uh, during my master's with Hillary. So we developed a pretty good relationship through that. And now on the other side of things, I have started to specialize in sleep. And I love it. I have a personal, personal history with sleep. I've struggled with sleep for as long as I can remember. And I still do. And even though I know what I'm supposed to do, it's tough to make those changes. <laughs> um, but working on it, this is one of my health goals this year. Um, so, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And then Hillary? Sure. Um, so I've been working in, in the field for just over 20 years. I've been a behavior analyst for 10. Um, I've done a lot of things. I've worked as an EA in schools. I've worked in a residential setting. Um, I've worked with infant-toddler intervention. Um, so I've done a few different things and sort of had my hand in a few different things and um, finally sort of had to focus my area on those pieces where I could build competence because when you have your hands dipped in so many things, I, I felt really stretched. Um, so decided to focus on sleep and partly it was Nicole bringing it up and because her advisor at EBC had brought it up and we kind of mulled over it for a while and it actually took us a while to dive in and it took us a while to um, really kind of develop a passion about it and start it off and start the, um, the business, et cetera. For me, sleep, I mean, my sleep has always been good, <laughs> but once I had kids, not so much. So my interest was really driven by my youngest who at the time that we started all of this wasn't sleeping well and it was driving me nuts. So I, for some reason, hadn't thought about looking into our field to help. I don't know why I read the books, right? Like you'd be on the mom Facebook group or somebody would recommend a book on sleep and it was, okay, well, I'll read that. And I would read it and it never really resonated with me. And it just seemed like, oh yeah, whatever. Hmm. Yeah. And I, we then did our, um, our mentorship call, which we can talk about too. And that night I started sleep training. Like I started working on what I needed to work on because it had finally clicked. Like I had a framework that I understood and then I fixed my kids sleep and that was a game changer. So I think I come at it from a parent perspective of understanding that when your kids don't sleep, you don't sleep. And when you don't sleep, you don't function. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's what drove me and that's what continues to drive me to love this part of what I do. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and so Nicole, what, uh, you, you also mentioned your bio that you have some sleep issues. So what, what, what's going on there? What, what, what's, what's your sleep issues? Um, I am one of those people who can develop a sleep dependency really quickly, which means I need to have certain conditions in the environment to be just so in order for me Mm -hmm. to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And I've been this way ever since I was a kid And I think my parents just didn't really know any better, but I used to be like falling asleep to books on tape when I was like four or five. And that would be like, you'd have to pause it. If it was off in the middle of the night, I would wake up and I'd have to like switch the track. So you'd have to like open it, turn it over, put it back in. Wow. I know. And then it turned into like, I had a little TV in my room. So now it's DVDs. And so I was falling asleep to DVDs 
And 13 going on 30 was usually the one that was on repeat, which is very interesting. Uh-huh. Um, and then I was finding myself falling asleep to any movie during the day because I had cued myself to fall asleep to movies. Uh, of course. Um, yeah. So I still struggle with this issue. And I think part of it, there's some anxiety. There's some, like, it, it helps me wind down at night. I don't have to think about anything. Even though I know books are just as good, there is this ease of watching television. So that's something that I'm starting to work on and fade out. I also struggled with full stomach. So I'd have to have a full stomach right before I go to sleep. And I would wake up and have to eat Mm. in the middle of the night if I Mm. couldn't fall back to sleep. My dad is very much like this as well. Like he, he struggles with that. And my sister, not so much. So yeah very interesting so I'm now I'm aware of it and I talk about it a lot and but it is and I just come from a place of knowing how hard it is to change even though I know better it's still really difficult absolutely first off sleep dependence is probably something that a lot I mean it's not something I've ever heard of Um, it's probably something that parents have never heard of and so they don't even consider as sort of being a problem for you to sort of you know as long as long as Nicole's going to sleep we don't care how uh it's probably you know what the parents perspective is but it sounds like there's a lot of things in there like like full stomach and 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 sort of the sounds and different things that maybe that you're dependent on for sleep but then I also understand from listening and, and watching kind of your Instagram profiles that are not recommended for having good sleep. Oh, no. Like the quality of my sleep is poor because there's light in the room when I'm falling asleep. Um, My stomach, like if you have a full stomach when you go to sleep, your stomach doesn't actually have time to rest and recover Mm -hmm. and repair. So that's when you can develop things like allergies or like other gastrointestinal issues because it doesn't have time to like repair and reset for the morning. Um, And it can throw off your whole body clock if your stomach doesn't get to sleep either because that clock is also on its own system. Um, So yeah, I'm very aware of it um, and really working hard. I try not to eat right before bed. Um, So my stomach is semi-empty, at least partially. I definitely noticed a switch over the holidays when I was eating at random times and... right. Um, yeah, I'm curious about that piece around. So I, I I don't, I don't know much about this. So about allergies and whatnot developing, can you just kind of unpack that a little more? What do you mean by that? Well, if your stomach doesn't have time to rest and recover and, um, I don't know the science behind it because I'm not, I guess, what would you call someone who specializes in that? But, um, a doctor maybe, maybe, (laughs) I don't know doctors, but it's, it's, it's figuring out, um, like you can develop sensitivities to certain foods. And so mm-hmm. there was a period in my life when I was having like lots of protein shakes and that would be like at 10 PM at night. Mm. And all of a sudden I started to see allergies pop up. So I would get stomach aches for certain things. Hindsight, I'm wondering if that had to do with sleep. I don't know. But now I have like, I can't eat quinoa. I, I could always eat it. And then I started to develop these weird food sensitivities um, that I had never had before. Right, right. And was there a relationship sort of between, like, so it, would it be like you would eat quinoa at night and then develop a sensitivity to it? Or was it just sort of whatever you ate at night would then lead to sensitivities to other things? Uh, no, it was during the day. 
I was like in general, like my gut just went completely awry. Gotcha. And we know how our like our gut and our gut health can really impact sleep as well or impact right, our right. It, it, it all is connected. Our whole body is connected and works yeah. in tandem. Yeah. So I'm just in hindsight, I'm just like, oh, I wonder. But as I'm reading all these things, I'm like, oh, probably. <laughs> totally. So there, I mean, I think this gets to sort of a, a, a bigger point that, um, and sort of kind of speaks a bit, I guess, to, to Hillary's point about how, you know, you didn't think that, you know, ABA could sort of do anything for sleep uh, initially. Um, but also, clearly, it's not just ABA. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, medical knowledge and, and other sorts of things that you folks need to understand to really have competence. It's not just a matter of understanding how to do, you know, a bedtime pass or whatever um, uh, as a procedure. You've got to know all these other sorts of sorts of things. So where did you learn this stuff? <laughs> a lot of reading a lot of um, reading a lot of reading yeah. um it's funny because we did a presentation at cap and somebody mentioned that they were tackling sleep and they gave the example of using a bedtime pass and using tokens etc at bedtime and we sort of had to make the point that that's not actually tackling sleep that's tackling a bedtime routine mm. that can contribute to sleep but it's not actually tackling sleep itself mm. because you can have a great bedtime routine and still have a really crappy sleep mm. um so understanding sleep itself, understanding sleep architecture, understanding all of the various areas, like there is really no area functioning, whatever you want to call it, of your body that isn't impacted by sleep. Mm -hmm. So when there's sleep deprivation, the effects of it are so profound and in ways that you wouldn't really think about um, to the point where it can actually shorten your life expectancy. So mm. it's a huge deal um, when you think about it chopping years off your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that seems like a, a motivator for folks, maybe to to although although the the the, the delayed gratification piece kind of probably falls in there too. Um, folks just don't think of that stuff until maybe it's too late. Very true, and I think that's what we try to do in, in our sleep talks is talk about those little things that you might notice. Um, and talk about some of the benefits. You know, we worked with one family who later told us the school was noting improvement after sleep improved, just in general mood, inability to stay on task, um, inability to interact with peers. Um, there was a noticeable difference in mood and ability to meaningfully engage in the school day. Like I, I was talking to a, a colleague the other day and she was telling me that, um, and it seems to make a lot of sense that, uh, she actually has a, she has a standard rule in her practice that for every case, no matter who it is, uh, she requires that they work on sleep before anything else. You know, but in the past, I might not have been able to understand that, but it's, it seems like a lot of problems folks have um, could be connected to just, you know, a, a, a poor sleep and have a lot less to do with sort of some of the sort of the day-to-day -day environmental things and changes that we kind of make. Yeah, I mean, I look back on clients that I've worked with in the past and just, you know, those ones that I knew there were sleep issues and just realized that's something that we absolutely should have tackled because it contributed to those B days we had to have. It contributed to why isn't this progressing or why aren't we, why aren't we able to address this? Like what's going on here? And 
understanding too, that when kids aren't sleeping, parents aren't sleeping. Mm. So there's a lot that can go into sleep deprivation that can really impact everybody's day. So I think that's a really good rule to have. And then the other piece is nutrition. And nutrition and meal habits are very closely tied together. So if you aren't eating well, and if, if you're grazing, so if you're eating little bits throughout the day, which kids that are pickier eaters often do, mm-hmm. your circadian rhythm, your body clock has no way to anchor itself to see passage of time. And so your body clock gets out of whack. Mm. When your body clock is out of whack, your sleep times will be off. Your body won't know when to wake and when to sleep. And that can have a huge impact on your sleep. That's when you start to get those really crazy sleep schedules of kids that are going to bed at midnight or that are waking up at three for the day um, because their body clock is just so confused. And so nutrition is a huge piece too. And I've learned in my practice in the last few years to really be asking those questions right off the bat. So it may not be a sleep client. It may be um, a family that I'm starting to work with. And I will ask how's sleep, how's feeding, How's toileting? How's the daily functioning? Because if you don't address all of those things, you're going to have a much harder time teaching. Hmm. And so, how, does nutrition fit into the into the picture in terms of kind of what you're eating, or is it more about is it, is it more just about sort of the times that you're eating? Yeah, Nicole talked about gut issues, yeah. and that's quite common as well. Like that tends to happen or be reported quite a bit in autistic kids. Yeah. Um, if you have an upset tummy and it wakes you up at night, if you're not digesting properly, if you have food sensitivities, all of that may be cause for wake up or maybe cause for you just to feel yucky, which makes it harder to sleep. Is it possible to be, so this is, I'm, I'm, I'm asking from personal experience is I'm a, I'm a grazer. Um, so is, is it possible to be a grazer and still have a good night's sleep if I just be a grazer, but then still stop eating a couple hours before bed? Depends. Probably. <laughs> I, want, I, I need permission here. <laughs> Do you consistently graze <laughs> at certain times of the day? <laughs> well, I just, I eat when I'm hungry, right? So um, uh, sometimes that's, you know, I, I definitely eat like a regular breakfast now. Uh, and, and that's only because of a, a recent medication I started taking that uh, I have to take with food. And I tried not taking it with food a couple times and it was an awful experience. So it was a punisher there. And I quickly, uh, negative reinforcement has caused me to have a full breakfast every morning, but um, the rest of the meals are pretty sporadic. Right. Part of the problem with grazing and particularly with autistic kids, because they tend to be hyper or hyposensitive in some way, shape or form to mm. various senses and input when you graze, you never really feel hungry because you're always just satiated. You Mm -hmm. kind of eat enough throughout the day at bits and pieces throughout the day that you never really feel hunger. Mm -hmm. And if you already have less sensitivity to hunger and to feelings in your body, and now you're grazing on top of that, it can be really difficult for kids to know that they're hungry to seek out food. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that having a regular schedule in general is a good idea because it, it does train your body to recognize those sensations. I'm mm-hmm. hungry versus not hungry. Mm-hmm. You're less likely to feel hungry if you're grazing through the day, mm-hmm. which is then it makes it harder for you to anchor your meals and it makes it harder for you to eat when everyone else is eating. And those regular schedules are really important as well for bowel movements 
and mm-hmm. for other functions in your body. And we know that autistic kids as well have challenges in those areas. So it all ties in. Um, Very complex. All of these things need to be tackled. If you're planning on collecting BACB continuing education credits for this podcast, you'll need to remember the three secret words. The first secret word is sleep. And, and so I would imagine irregularity and, and all that sort of stuff is going to totally affect sleep. I mean, if you're constipated and whatnot. Yeah, not uncommon to come across kids that have got issues or are constipated because of their meal habits. Sure. And then are there, are, are there certain kinds of foods that are maybe more conducive to a good sleep or certain kinds of foods that are just awful, like, like sugar or whatever artificial stuff? Avoiding caffeine in the afternoon. Mm. So that's even things like chocolate and um, high sugar foods before bed. I did mm. a lot of that over the holidays and I paid for it <laughs> um, mm-hmm. at night. I've done, and some people are more sensitive than others. Um, some people say they can drink a cup of coffee before bed and still mm-hmm. go to sleep fine. But if you do, if you look at the research, their sleep quality is still lesser than if they were to not have caffeine before bed. Yeah, because it's it's a pretty common thing. I mean, at least maybe with sort of the older generation of my my parents, um, to sort of to have a cup of coffee like after dinner, uh, as sort of the dessert or whatever. And I yeah. remember going out to restaurants, and then you know my my dad would order like an espresso after dessert. Sure, and it, it's insane. It yeah, and I didn't really. I mean, I didn't at the time. Now, when you think about it, same with alcohol. You know, oh, yeah. I often hear people say, oh, I can have a cup of coffee and I can drink before bed and I'm just fine. Yeah, well, with the alcohol, you're actually sedated. Um, you're not necessarily sleeping. Like, your quality of sleep is impaired. And it's the same with caffeine. You, mm. may, you may sleep, meaning, like, you may go to bed, your head hits the pillow, you're asleep within 15 minutes, and you wake up at your typical time. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean your quality of sleep was good. And the research tells us that your quality of sleep is actually diminished. But, is which is why you don't, and then it's a perpetual cycle because then you wake up feeling groggy and then you hit the caffeine again and then you hit your wall because caffeine has a half-life of five to seven hours. So mm. five hours later, half of it is still in your system. Mm. So you start to hit a wall in the afternoon because mm-hmm. now your sleep pressure is building up again and you're starting to feel groggy again. So you hit the caffeine again. Same thing five hours later. Well, I need to study. I need to get my last pieces of work done. I need to do these other things. So I'm going to hit the caffeine again, even though it's like seven, eight o'clock at night, because I got to get through the next few hours, you go to sleep. And then that cycle just starts all over again the next day. Okay. What's sleep pressure? I've heard this term before. Nicole, tell me about sleep pressure. So when we wake up in the morning, um, our sleep pressure is at its lowest because we're at that reset. And so there's this neurotransmitter adenosine that slowly builds up throughout the day. And Mm -hmm. it's just a curve that goes up and up and up. And then once you hit a certain point, that's when your body's like, okay, it's time to sleep again to reduce that pressure. So it's just an up and down graph throughout the day. Caffeine blocks those receptors for adenosine. Mm -hmm. So the adenosine is still accumulating, but And then as soon as that caffeine, like those receptors are open again, the adenosine just comes rushing through. So that's that wall that Hillary was talking about. So sleep pressure is essentially just the the level of adenosine in your body? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Mm, okay. And so... And it's a cue for all your systems to shut down or to keep going. And yeah, they'd all, it's all very sciencey. Right, right. And, and so when the cough, when the caffeine, you know, essentially blocks those receptors in the brain, uh, it's basically telling the body that uh, it's basically, st- is it stopping the production of adenosine or is it just, is it just telling the body that the, it's just confusing the body? It's just confusing the body. So it's just blocking the receptor sites in the cells. So meanwhile, this stuff has still been building up, but the caffeine is just sort of uh, giving you a break from that. And then, and, and then, then as soon as the caffeine's gone, right. so as soon as that half-life hits and the caffeine yeah. starts to melt away, right. the adenosine, all of that had been building up, all now comes crashing at you and full force. So it hasn't been like mingled in across the day. Now it kind of hits you, right. which is why you hit that wall which is why later in the evening after you've had more caffeine and you go to bed at your regular time, you're likely not sleepy because the caffeine is blocking most of the adenosine. Mm-hmm. Even though it's still there, that sleep pressure isn't cueing the rest of your body to sleep because all of the sort of systems related to sleep coordinate. Melatonin is the fire starter, or the, um, the starter pistol. Um, there's different systems in your body that work together to tell your body it's time to sleep. And they're all usually housed in that little piece of your brain between your eyes. So it's all of these systems kind of work together. And when you interrupt it with caffeine, you throw everything else out of whack. Hmm. Wild. And so when, when, so when should we have our last cup of coffee then? Mine is 11 a.m. Okay. Yeah, I don't drink coffee anymore. I just drink tea, but still I try to keep my tea before 12. Because um, that's still so interesting fact too. Look up caffeine numbers. I would encourage everyone to do that. You would be surprised how much caffeine is in black tea. Oh, yeah. Mm. And you would be surprised how much caffeine is in different things that you think are actually less caffeine. Um, same, same with, with decaf. Like- decaf coffee does have caffeine in it. It mm. is decaffeinated it's not no caffeine and there's right, a difference right. i was gonna say pepsi like diet coke <laughs> made yeah. that mistake i was yeah. like oh there's no caffeine in diet coke <laughs> <laughs> or coke zero and no there is yeah. there is full caffeine right. in all of these beverages right um, seven up they all have caffeine the only one that doesn't is root beer um oh yeah because when i was pregnant that's what i drank so root beer does not have caffeine in it are there other foods that folks would would be surprised to have caffeine in them Yes. Things like ice cream, dairy, some dairy products, ice cream does. I would encourage, again, like Google, be careful not to go down like the rabbit hole of Google, but Uh um, (laughs) Google some of the things that you eat and just check out what's in them. Nice bedtime foods. Like if you want to have a snack before bed with my kids, we do things like um, almonds if we can or nuts and we do banana, may do yogurt, like a Greek yogurt that has a bit more protein to it. Partly that's just me also Going back to when I was pregnant with my first, I had gestational diabetes. And so I Mm. had to go through the education process of, you know, your insulin and all that stuff. And Mm -hmm. um, there are snacks before bed that are just better for you because they just help your system in general. Um, So things that are kind of a mix of carb and protein. So try not to go carb heavy. Um, What kind of a mix? Sugary foods. It's interesting if you look at the research on sugary foods. I know that it's out there that sugar causes hyperactivity. That's mixed. There's actually not a ton of research to support that across the board. Sweet. It seems to be a very individual type thing. So yes. um, 
I think some people are probably more sensitive to others, but (laughs) um, as a parent using that sugar's not good for you, it makes you hyper. It's actually not a thing. And when I look at, when I kind of realized that and looked more at my kids and when they got hyperactive, I realized that, you know, it wasn't necessarily tied to sugar. Other things were going on. I kind of put my behavior analyst hat on and I was like, yeah, you know what? There's other things going on here that are probably contributing to it. Not necessarily the sugar, Um, but your digestive system does shut down when you sleep. So they're kind of on the same schedule, meaning when your body sleeps, your digestive system sleeps. So if you think of what you're putting into your body before bed, it doesn't actually all digest properly. So there's certain things when you put it into your body just aren't going to help you, whether it's with obesity or sleep, they just, it's not going to help you. Um, So paying attention to what those are can impact your sleep. So much, so much stuff. Well, and and so you, 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 you mentioned, um, you know, as we should with sort of any specialization that you got, you have to, you know, do, do the work to gain competence. And you worked with a with with a mentor. Was the mentor a, a behavior analyst, or was this, or were they uh, just a? They were versus just a sort of sleep professional. Yeah, we actually took advantage. Of, Dr. Hanley was here a few years ago, and we yep. we asked him um, if he did mentorship or if he had any suggestions for mentorship, and he sent us to Dr. Kira Moore. And so we worked with her for a little bit. Um, we did, I think, a couple of Zoom sessions with her. And it definitely helped us with the behavior analytic part of things. It definitely kind of light bulbs went off in terms of how to frame sleep within our science. And then from there, I mean, that's one piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. So from there, we then did a whole bunch of other research. And you'd sort of ask the questions of what, I remember you kind of asked, what journals would people look at? And um, I realized that, I kind of started to go through some of the articles that I've read. I'm like, Oh, what journals would people look at? And I realized there's like a ton. So Uh basically it could be any pediatric journal, any sleep journal, any nursing journal, a lot of medical journals will have information on sleep. Um, So we didn't just stay within the behavior analytic research. Cause again, you have to understand sleep and you, then you have to understand all the other things that pop into it. So we had to look up different medications when we started to look up different conditions and, mm-hmm. and their comorbidity with sleep and how does that affect and so it took us a good two years to delve through all of that do the mentorship get the hands-on practice and really get a firm understanding um, to be able to kind of feel like okay now I think I'm competent in this area so it took us it took us a while did you do the hands-on practice with that same mentor or a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. It was harder to do just timing wise. Mm. Um, so we were able to do some and then we we did a lot and then we started to do some ourselves um, and just gain some practice and just, I mean, any new practitioner in any area, I think would agree that just even just starting to work with different cases, you start to realize the breadth of what you need to know mm-hmm. and you start to realize the practical and you start developing your model and figuring out what other areas do I need to know about and, you know, how do I fine tune this? And so it, it took us a while to get to where we actually felt comfortable building a business around it mm-hmm. versus it being something that we do um, within our regular practice. There seems to be, um, I mean, uh, for the folks like myself who, you know, are just sort of pseudo familiar and 
uh, with with a bit of this, like three names that kind of seem to pop up uh, for me uh, in behavior analysis, and and one of them was not the, the who, what was this what was the doctor's name again that you Kira did you say? Yeah, Dr. Kira Moore. So she was an um, she worked with Hanley. So she, to my knowledge, hasn't done research. That's um, she worked with the team, the sleep team. So gotcha. they're sort of branches of Hanley's people. <laughs> Some are in the PFA realm and right. um, a couple have gone into the sleep, but not yeah. many. So she was one of them that went into the sleep realm. It hasn't published yet to my knowledge. Gotcha. Uh, so from, from sort of the outside, I guess this is more of the folks that have maybe done the best marketing. Um, there, for a long time, there was that Durand book and then still a good one. Okay. Uh, and then, and I don't, and, and I say then, but I don't actually know the order of things. Um, Hanley's now, I, I didn't know anything about Hanley and sleep until I kind of got onto the PFA website and realized it was more than just PFA. He was doing some other things. Uh, and then Pat Fryman, uh, just, just from, because he was at our, our, our conference there last year. Um, and he was talking about it. Um, are these like the, the, the main sort of folks in ABA that are working on sleep or are there others? Um, yeah. Uh, Piazza has done some work on sleep. Um, what's the other, what's, she did a podcast. What's her name? Uh, Sand, Sand, uh, Sandy Jin, Sandy Jin. And she works, yeah. she did work with Hanley as well. Yeah. Um, but she, She's great. And so are you, is your sort of model of intervention based on one of theirs or do you guys have your own? Like what's your model? Like what's that look like? What is our model? (laughs) I think like with any mentorship, like you, you, you kind of start out doing what your mentor did. I think one of the things I've learned is cookie cutter mentorship and supervision is really not a good idea because it, just creates more of the same and it doesn't necessarily teach critical thinking or really understanding Uh those pieces of the field that apply to your practice. So we definitely did start with what we learned. And then as we started to expand, I think we actually had the conversation with ourselves that, wait a second, we don't have to stay with this interview form. (laughs) Like we don't have to do it exactly how we were taught. We can change things. Um, we can go based off what we're learning and we can take what we know um, and expand on it. So our process has changed. Our interview form has changed. How we talk with parents has changed. Um, we pull in ACT because a lot of mm. sleep issues are tied in with anxiety. There's, there's other components that we've pulled in. So I would say, I would say that, Nicole, you can agree or disagree. I would mm. say that we, we don't do exactly what we learned. We've incorporated a lot of other pieces that were important to us and in line with our values as practitioners and that we saw had benefit to the families that we work with. So we've switched our forms. We've switched, I mean, whether we follow a certain model, at the end of the day, the behavior analytic framework doesn't change, right? Mm -hmm. You have your, your ABC model and that doesn't change, but all the other moving parts, we've definitely shifted to better understand sleep as a whole. I was going to say it's consistently evolving um, because there's, there's new information coming out every day and with every client we learn something new. Um, or it's not static. Like it's, yeah, it's continuously changing. And I think that's, we value that in our practice. Um, 
to to keep moving forward. Sure. So who are you working with? What kind of what's your what's the population? Everybody? <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> the nice thing is everyone sleeps and sleep at the foundation mm-hmm. is it is biological and it's we know what it is, but right. um we have worked with um, various individuals through in the neurodivergent community. So with diagnosis, if we're going to use diagnosis as a as category, I, autism, um, ADHD, anxiety. Like, like, I mean, I, I think, like, I know, like, RABA in our field and, you know, there's, we, we, we focus, especially in BC on autism quite a bit. Um, but, like, could you see yourself working with sort of, you know, you know, like, do, 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 do you do things like for parents, for parents sleep and that sort of thing? Yeah, I think our goal is to work with really anybody that needs sleep help. So mm-hmm. we've, we've helped teens, we've helped adults, mm-hmm. we've helped kids, we don't do babies. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't do infant sleep, but we know a couple of um, good resources for infant sleep if anybody needs So that, that, is, that is a thing, okay. Hmm. That is a thing. Infant sleep, I feel like, is a different animal. Um, yeah. because there's so much more to it. Feeding is tied in fat, stress, postpartum, et cetera. There's a lot that goes into infant sleep. Yeah. So I feel like that's another specialty. That's almost another area you'd have to dive into, um, yeah. to really understand it. So we don't do infant sleep. Mm. Um, so we basically, basically focus on, um, kind of tune up to yeah. with all the way up to adulthood. It's, it's great. I suppose when a family comes to you and says, you know, Hey, I need help with sleep, um, you know, for my child or for myself or whatever. Um, but something I, I, I run into a lot is, you know, from my perspective, I can tell sleep's the, you know, a big issue here. It's probably one of your biggest problems, but you don't want to work on sleep. You're here to work on things in the daytime, um, that I know are affected by sleep, but you as a mom or a dad think that, you know, either the sleep's not a, not an important issue, maybe part, partly because they're not sleeping that well either, uh, and so the last thing they want to do is do an activity at night at night, or they just think because the child is asleep. And you 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 folks touched on a couple a few times on the fact that you can sleep and not have quality sleep, and maybe they don't even realize they're not having a quality sleep. How do you kind of get families sort of on board with working on sleep when that's not their goal, but you know that's sort of probably the most important piece. <laughs> I think I just did an Instagram story. Somebody asked me this with parent oh, collaboration. Really? How do you, how do you get buy-in? Well, sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the thing is if somebody doesn't want to work on something, they're not going to work on something. And as much as you think they should, it's not going to happen. Parents have to be ready to work on sleep. They have to be in a place where they can. And to try to work with somebody who isn't ready, is skeptical, isn't sure it's going to work. I mean, our research tells us when it comes to social validity, we're just we're probably not going to get anywhere. And I can say that for me as a parent, there was a time when I really needed to fix sleep, but I was too tired and it was just easier for me to just do the wrong thing that let us sleep, but really cause problems long-term um, because I just wasn't in a place where I could tackle it. I think it's hard because we, we do hear from different practitioners. We've sent people to you. We've referred families to you, but we don't necessarily hear from the families. And it's that barrier there that they just aren't ready to take that step to commit. Because sleep training too, the thought of it is very daunting. It sounds like 
it sounds exhausting. And in some ways it is, it means <laughs> sleep kind of gets worse before it gets better. But I think for a lot of families and parents, it just sounds like a lot <laughs> and the thought of it just stops them. Um, but I mean, that's also where ACT can come in. I think both of us have gotten into the habit of checking in with where families are at before we start mm-hmm. and just making sure where your values are at, what's important to you right now. Are we clear that these steps, fixing sleep is going to get you to where you want to be and making sure what we're doing is in line with those values and what's important to them. We take that step because trying to work with somebody who in any field, in any way, trying to work with somebody that doesn't believe in what's happening or doesn't really want to do it, isn't going to go well. Mm -hmm. Do you... You mentioned, yeah, the the act piece and and uh, kind of this values approach too. So, do you use that sort of with with all your folks? You kind of start there. I think indirectly, we do. Um, that's one of the things I loved about the mentor that I worked with on act is is she relieved a lot of my pressure and stress on myself and kind of said, you know what, don't worry about knowing the terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't worry, don't worry about memorizing everything. Don't worry mm-hmm. about like following everything to the T, and just don't worry about that you understand the basics of psychological flexibility and what you need to get there. So just Mm -hmm. do that. And I think that gave me permission to just let go a little bit and follow a flow instead of a formula. So I think we indirectly, meaning like we don't, we don't pull out the matrix. (laughs) We don't pull out um, all of that and sit down and go through it. But indirectly, you know, we talk with parents about their frustrations and their current barriers and the stories in their head because they pop up as we ask our questions. Mm-hmm. And then we're able to talk with them about their values and what's important to them and what do you want to achieve with sleep and what do you what do you want things to look like? So I think indirectly we do that. And are you incorporating kind of other kind of components of ACT? Uh, what's, what, what, else, what else do you do with ACT? Because that's something that I think folks would, would be interested to hear about. The second secret word is melatonin. I mean, again, it's not like a formula we're following. We go through these steps and that's what this is called. I think once you start to get to the heart of it and you start to move through the matrix with somebody and you start to talk about their values, you can address some of the stories and then you can use different ways of trying Mm. to get them to see things differently and change those stories and have them serve a different function. Yes, you're worried about this, and that took you over here, but now it's taking you over here because that's where you want to go. So I think there's different ways that we pull it in, but it all depends on the family and their comfort level in what information they want to share with us mm-hmm. and our comfort level in, in managing what's happening. Because we have sought out um, collaboration with doctors and psychiatrists and other professionals that do things we can't. Um, so we also recognize our limitations when it comes to tackling anxiety and tackling other disorders as well. I've done most of my work has been kind of with adults. Um, have you done work with adults? A, cu- a couple, yeah. yeah. And um, my, myself. <laughs> what's that? And myself. I'm an adult. And, and yourself as an adult. Um, what? One thing that I've I've run into a lot, and I, so my, I've worked a lot with adults, kind of in kind of residential care and those types of settings, um, and uh, uh, often 
you know, for a whole bunch of different reasons, whether it's sort of trauma history or, you know, lots of folks coming out of institutions and those sorts of things and having a lot of that kind of background. Sleep becomes a problem and it becomes more of a problem, I think, sometimes for the staff um, uh, of these places. And so the go-to is to basically meds let's get them sedated and uh and and uh and then they'll be quiet all night um and uh you know and we can you know do whatever we do on the overnight um and uh instead of having to kind of kind of deal with these folks my sense is is they're not very very helpful Are, are are there medications that are helpful with sleep medicated sleep is sedated sleep so it's the quality of it isn't as good as if you weren't on medication. Um, so you want to be wary of when you're using medication. Mm-hmm. And so are there, like, how, how, I think that that's something you keep coming back to is quality of sleep. Um, and so if you have someone who's sleeping through the night, but it's not good quality, how do you assess quality of sleep? Well, you need to do a sleep study to formally assess it. But generally, yeah. you can just do a quick Likert scale in the morning or in the afternoon of mood. I mean, somebody that isn't sleeping will be irritable. We'll have trouble remembering things. We'll feel sluggish. Um, we'll start to seek out coffee. We'll necessarily remember things. We'll have trouble learning things and retaining information. Mm-hmm. Um, their mood swings. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can... It's like when you start to measure various parts of um, somebody that you're working with. If you're looking at approach versus avoidance behaviors, if you're looking for indications of kind of ascent, withdrawal of ascent, you, you start to pay attention to... Um, those cues and it would be the same with sleep is if you've had a good night's sleep what does that look like and if you haven't what does that look like and often you don't actually see the difference until you see quality sleep Um, we had a parent that had been sleep deprived for so long that that when they started to sleep again they communicated that i i I didn't realize what sleep deprivation did to me until i was sleeping again and now i know what it did and then you feel the effects of it now even when you don't get even if you get an hour less sleep than you should in a night, technically you're sleep deprived the next day. You're functioning at a legal alcohol limit. So it's like you've had a glass of wine. An hour or less? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And an hour or less can really impact like your insulin and all of that. And, then- and it's tricky with medication because the other thing that some medications do is they, um, they make you sleepy. Yeah. So they help with onset of sleep, but then that can become a sleep dependency. Mm-hmm. Um, melatonin is one of the bigger issues too, because it's often prescribed to autistic children. You're having yep. trouble sleeping. Let's give you melatonin because there is research that tells us that autistic children tend to have lower levels of melatonin and they mm-hmm. tend to have weaker circadian rhythms, but without knowing how much lower their melatonin level is, <laughs> um, to prescribe melatonin, you need to be aware of the dosage and a two to three mm. milligram would be the highest you'd want to go. Anything above that would be above what your body would naturally produce. Mm-hmm. So that wouldn't make sense. I, we, we had one that was on 10 milligrams. And mm-hmm. we, that. we tried to fade that out because too much melatonin or inappropriate delivery of melatonin can lead to night waking. Mm. It can mess with your natural production. Um, so, and melatonin itself, and this is my soapbox, melatonin <laughs> is also not, um, <laughs> is not regulated. <laughs> so, uh, you can have two brands of melatonin that will have different ingredients in it. And oh. we'll have, like, you can even have within a brand, you can have different levels of melatonin across bottles. It's so crazy. if you're going to use melatonin, go to a pharmacist, ask for a good brand, 
be careful of dosage. And yeah, there's a grid website. Um, his name is Dr. Kanapari and he, um, and he has a nice video that I share with parents on melatonin because he visually shows when melatonin actually starts to be released in your body. And it's earlier than we think. Um, mm. And what can happen sometimes with melatonin because it causes a bit, it sets the conditions for sleep. That's really all it does. It's a mm. fire pistol. It kind of starts off the sleep cycle, but it doesn't keep you asleep and it doesn't really put you to sleep necessarily, but it can make you feel drowsy and that can become a sleep dependency. But if mm. you do that at the wrong time, you can mess with the sleep cycle because now you're going against the natural sleep cycle. So it can cause more problems than it can fix. Having said that, and I think Dr. Hanley has said this as well, medication that is for another purpose, but happens to have the side effect of perhaps negatively impacting sleep, we're more cautious of. An example might be seizure medication. So I'm not going to suggest we mess with dosage of seizure <laughs> medication if it's preventing seizures uh -huh. because I want better sleep. Um, so we're careful about what a medication, and again, that comes back to our roots, right? So what is this medication supposed to do? Do you have a measure to tell you that it's working? So if it's supposed to increase or reduce or whatever it is it's supposed to do, let's take some data and make sure that's what it's doing for you. And I do that with any of my clients, even outside of sleep. Um, and if it's not necessary, then let's look at reducing it in collaboration with your doctor. I recommend that on our own, um, always working with whether it's a psychiatrist or a nurse or a doctor to take a look at whether or not it's needed. Clonidine is a very popular drug to be given to kids to get them to sleep. That's um, a powerful one. Mm -hmm. Sure is. Sure. Especially for a four or five year old. That's yeah. a, that's a big one. And again, yeah, it, it'll knock them out and they'll sleep, but then you got to pay attention to whether or not or how that impacts their day and whether or not they're actually having good qualities. Like what's, what's the most common question you, you get from folks? Like common sleep problem? Yeah. Night wakings, I'd say. Yep. Like my child keeps waking up at night. Right. How can I fix it? Yeah, I mean, this is the problem I have. So this is this was me. This was uh, I keep waking up at, uh, and my wife does too. She she wakes up regularly at four. I wake up regularly at three, um, and it's usually a bathroom trip. And uh, sometimes I'm back to sleep. And 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 uh, granted, I, I I think last night I I had uh, maybe. A couple of beverages, a little closer to bedtime, and uh, I've been thinking about that. I've been I've, I, I listened to one of your webinars you did recently, the two of you, um, and uh, I've actually, for the most part, stopped drinking alcohol during the week uh, because I get home from work. I do have to drive a little bit for work, and I get home around six, and I've determined that that's too late. Uh, to have a beverage, uh, mostly because of the sort of the, the fluid piece, right? Um, I don't know where, I'm, where 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 I was going with this. Waking at night, so yeah, and so but so then it was so then it uh, but so then I wake up at night. But then I've also heard that it's a really good idea to drink a bottle, of, a glass of water just before bed and just when you get up. Is that true? Yeah. So we. <laughs> We naturally will wake up like our body does go through these different cycles where you do wake up and usually you don't remember it. I, uh, I also have this massive water bottle that I try not to drink before bed. Otherwise, I will be up all night. Um, yeah. But sometimes when you do wake up, just having a sip of water 
is fine and that helps you get right back to sleep. So night wakings are partly normal, but if they start to interfere and you have to do a lot of things to get back to sleep, that's when you mm-hmm. want to start addressing. So, and this is the problem I'm having. And so I, last night I woke up at three 30 in the morning and, and, you know, and went to the bathroom, whatever, and got back to bed. And all of a sudden I started thinking about this interview I have to do today with you two. Uh, and I started getting a little stressed out about it, mostly because I started getting stressed out about what if I don't get back to sleep? I'm going to be exhausted. I'm going to ask questions and, and I don't know how somehow I ended up just falling asleep again, but that was just a fluke. Like, what do you do? I've tried something that's worked for me and I think everybody has to kind of figure out themselves what's going to work for them. So I've started to do 10 breaths Uh counting my up and down. So my inhale one, exhale one, inhale two, exhale two. And I count as I do this. And if I have an interfering thought, I say hi to it and I move along. If it hooks me and I start to think on it too much, that mindfulness piece I'm getting better at. I can recognize that it's hooked me and mm. I go back to one again and I try again. And I practice during the day too. I practice at getting to 10 with only thoughts floating by because that's normal. Mindfulness doesn't mean there are no thoughts going through your head. Your thinking self cannot shut down to zero. Like there's, mm-hmm. that's not going to happen. But you need to get to a point where you can kind of see them float by Mm-hmm. And they don't hook you. You don't mm-hmm. jump on that boat and go with them. I've started doing that. I've had stressful points in the last year where I've done that as well. I've woken at night and ruminated on something. And I've started practicing that in the day. And then I start to do that at night. Once I realize like, wait a second, you're still awake. And you're still thinking <laughs> about this thing. I try to do the breathing and the counting. And I'm asleep quite quickly after that. And and is there no sort of... Uh sleep dependent piece happening there where you, uh, or maybe that's not the right term, but where you, you're doing that practice in the daytime and you start falling asleep. No. So, you, so I, I can do this mindfulness practice in the daytime and I won't pass out. Uh, but, but, but at three 30 in the morning, it might get me back to sleep. It, yeah. I haven't noticed that it's been yeah. a tool. So it's yeah. something I practice in the day. That's been a tool that I can start to actively do to shut my brain down mm-hmm. so that I'm, more ready for sleep and this the may- sleep pressure's there like i'm yeah, tired yeah 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 i'm just pushing through it right um, yeah i use that as well i did it the other night because i hadn't woken up like yeah. that but then i had my like hand on my stomach other hand on my chest and really was trying to feel the breathing too because yeah. for me that that helps to just feel it um because yeah the thoughts were running i don't know this world is an interesting place right now so yeah, yeah, it worked. I was out. I was, and when I woke up in the morning, I was like, hey, <laughs> I don't just have to do it during the day. I can do it at night. <laughs> and so that, so that's good. I'm definitely going to be trying that. Um, another one that I've been uh, that I've been doing that seems to work is um, sometimes is uh, and my wife kind of gave me this trick. It was sort of a, a variation on it, I guess, is she says, take a really long word um, and then take each letter of that long word and spell out another long word. Um, and I, I never get to the end of, uh, you know, of, uh, anti-disestablishmentarianism. Um, uh, I'm usually asleep by the time that, by, by the time that ends. And so is that basically just another sort of mindfulness exercise? Cause I'm sort of focusing on one thing and not on other things. 
it sounds like yeah, it. It yeah. sounds like it served that function for you where it yeah, kind of yeah. stops you from ruminating. It stops those stories and you're able to focus on something else, which then puts you in a better place to fall asleep. Because my struggle with sort of mindfulness and meditation in general is if I, when I try to do practice in the daytime, and this, I think this is partly why I asked the question, is I actually do fall asleep. Um, um, I, 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 and, and this is why I can't even do, I, I know they really suggest in mindfulness practice that it's a good idea to close your eyes. I've stopped doing that because, because I'll fall asleep. Uh, uh, my you wife, can even do guided meditation if that helps. Like you, there's no right or wrong way sure. to do it. It's just yeah. the outcome you need. So don't lie yeah. down. Don't, yes. don't sit in a comfy spot. Yeah. Um, sit in a place, have guided meditation going so that you're still engaged with something that's going on. Keep your yeah. eyes open. You can do that too. Just have kind of a fixated place you're going to look. You can do all of those things and still meditate. I suck at meditating, but mm-hmm. I practice that particular piece so that it can help me sleep. Have you ever had to deal with uh, folks that had sleep apnea? No, we, we rule that out before. Yeah. That's a medical mm. piece that Right, uh, that makes sense, yeah, right? You need like a respiratory therapist and doctors to to work yes. through that. Someone else can treat that. I just I ask more because I I have had a a couple of folks where we really where they needed a CPAP. Um and uh I use one actually myself and it's magic. Uh but um for someone who you know, for someone who has a lot of sensory sensitivities and whatnot, to, to put a big machine on their head that, that makes a loud noise all night long, um, and and they have to wear all sort of the stuff, um, you know, I imagine could be could be quite difficult. Uh, but I, I guess that's not your area. Not yet. We haven't yeah. come across it. Um, I know there's yeah. some new um, technology that they are trying to become less chunky. I think mm. like they're more just nose prongs instead of the whole mask. That would um, be amazing. Yeah. I think that's yeah. new and coming out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually I have, mine has uh, a, the, the, the nasal pillows, they call them. Well, they're not, they're not all that comfy, but basically um, uh, instead of the full on face mask, you have these two little cushiony things that um, attach to it, it looks. It, you look like an elephant, essentially, um, because you've got this sort of tube dangling it from your nose. I, I've become, you know, uh, quite the attractive, attractive sleeper um, with my with my chin strap and and super mask and 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 weird and weird breathing sound. And my wife tells me, always wear the chin strap because uh, uh, the CPAP actually it tends to blows air through your nose, and then blows all your bad breath out your mouth, um, and you become quite quite the uh, the stinky individual so <laughs> the chin strap is, has saved a lot of a lot of battles absolutely so i hear you talk a lot about um before you mentioned about uh, there there's there's like this book out there about sleep that's that's not an aba book that sort of everybody they they're sort of like the bible of sleep is is it is it, yeah. is it walker is that the fella yes yeah why we yep. sleep and, and, and what's that? What's that all about? Who is this guy? What's this book? <laughs> he's a professor. He's a neurologist. He's 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 got a lot of stuff out there you can listen to. Got a good um, TED Talk podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got podcasts. What's the podcast? Um, it's on Live Better Live Better. Yeah, I'll find something. it. Yeah, I can't remember the guy's name. Anyway. Um, he's got a couple podcasts on there that are really interesting. So this is a book that basically goes through the archaeology of sleep. It goes through the science behind sleep. And it tells you some really scary facts about sleep deprivation. So 
be prepared when you read it mm-hmm. that it is a bit jarring. It definitely makes you look at your own sleep habits and makes you realize like I got really paranoid after that about my kids sleep. Like, mm-hmm. Whoa, I need to fix this because um, the detrimental effects of sleep deprivation are just crazy. But what sleep can do for you, if you flip it, it's like the dishwasher cycle of your body. So it clears out all the things you don't need and it reinforces those things you learned that day. So it can be of huge benefit. There's research in sports, which I think is where Dr. Walker is working now. He's consulting with sports hmm. um, because it can improve your performance, your physical performance. If you you time your naps after training. Uh-huh. Um, it reinforces what your body learned that day. Um, really? It's similar to, and you kind of talked about trauma, it's kind of similar to stress and trauma in that if you sleep after traumatic events or after certain events, after learning something new, it can have a positive impact on how your body processes that information. Um, naps can be very powerful tools. Um, and sleep itself can be a really powerful tool in helping you learn better and helping you perform better. I used it to help me study for the board exam. Like I was using naps and sleep. Like if I didn't get it the night before, I'd just go to sleep and sleep on it. And it would, I'd, I'd get it the next day. And I'd get those questions really? right that I was continuously getting wrong. Um, I've been using that strategy probably throughout my undergrad and graduate mm-hmm. career. Um, I didn't know that it was... I didn't know that there was science behind it at the mm-hmm. time, but I found that to be really helpful for me. Are, th- are these like long naps? No, or? they can be like power naps, like quick. Mm-hmm. And what's a power nap? Like that, that's a thing that pe- I thought that was just a thing people made up. Like what, what, what's that mean? <laughs> the book actually talks about it. It came from um, practices that were suggested to pilots that were working the wonky schedules that they yes. would um, insert naps to help with the jet lag and with the 24 hour clock they were on because their schedules were so out of whack that if they timed naps at a certain point, it would almost provide like a boost. It Mm -hmm. would, um, it would help them stay alert because if you think of what sleep deprivation can do, it's really scary to think that somebody that is sleep deprived is um, in control of a plane um, or a moving vehicle for that matter. Um, because they've done studies comparing sleep deprivation with intoxication. And the scary thing is that sleep deprivation is worse because you're with sleep, with intoxication, you bounce back. So let's say you swerve off the road, you, you wake quickly and kind of swerve back on. With sleep deprivation, you go into a mini sleep, which means mm-hmm. everything in your body shuts down for that microsecond. You don't recover. You just wake up in the tree, basically. Um, so sleep deprivation, they found, is worse than intoxication. Yeah, because I was wondering about that with the intoxication piece, because I've noticed sort of, um, you know, and sort of more so in my college days, uh, uh, you know, when I might have, you know, a little too much to drink, but then something really, really, uh, you know, kind of adrenaline pumping happens, you know, like something, either something like really scary, like you said, like a driver swerving off the road or, 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 you know, someone just suddenly, you know, um, getting injured or whatever, you know, some sort of emergency and suddenly you feel completely sober. And so, and so, but I, I'm maybe with sleep deprivation that I don't think that would, you know, occur as much. You know, I've certainly noticed it in, in, in firefighting, um, you know, we, we get uh, side gig as uh, a volunteer firefighter, and and uh, we uh, 
you know, we'll get a, I'll, I'll get a page at, you know, sort of two in the morning and, uh, half asleep, drive down to the fire hall. Um, but then within a minute, I'm, I feel like I just slept 10 hours, you know, uh, I'm pumped and I'm ready to go. Um, like, but then that seems to last, you know, the whole, the whole event. Um, like how is that even possible? The third secret word is pressure. Well, when your body is overstimulated, when your body is stressed, basically there is a flood of neurochemicals that keep you awake. Epinephrine, adrenaline, they flood your body. And that keeps you awake for the duration of the event, so to speak. So, and that ties in with stress and trauma, right? Those those chemicals flooding your body will keep you awake. Um, So learning to deal with those stressors and to calm your body down so that you can sleep is really important. Mm-hmm. But in cases where you need to be awake to do your job, that part of your body kicking in like that and, and moving into the adrenaline and like the go, go, go mode is a good thing because it can mm-hmm. take you, take you through an event that actually lets you save somebody or put out a fire or whatever. it may be. Mm-hmm. So uh, being sort of, you know, sleep experts now. Uh, how has your sleep been changed? Again, mine's, mine's always evolving. Um, I'm this year is like I'm trying to figure it out and try to move through it. But I think it's better. But I think I could improve the quality by things I do during the day. Like, uh, like, like I would imagine you you being in a you know in a in a in a meeting with a family and then and then yawning. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that might, that might not help your pitch. No, um. definitely not. Um, I did just buy this. So I like to use light to my advantage and I just got this happy light that has really, it has like 10,000 lux, which is the amount yep. that what you would have outside. I have it and my sister has it and my mom has it now. And I am noticing that it keeps me like, I haven't yawned once this morning. Um, which I usually am quite groggy and I haven't had any caffeine yet. So hmm. I'm quite fascinated by this light. I probably should have and taken some baseline data, but um, <laughs> it's quite interesting. And my sister gets really jittery on it. Like she's had like 10 cups of coffee. Um, so some people are more sensitive to light than others, but mm-hmm. yeah, I'm noticing that's helping me and more light during the day, especially during these dark winters mm-hmm. is hopefully going to help the quality of my sleep in the night. So how, how did you figure out that you, to, to, to get a happy light? Like I've heard about it for sort of, uh, the only thing I've heard about these lights for are the, is a sort of seasonal affective disorder. Is that right? I think that's yeah. the satellite. Something, yeah. Is that something you have or did you just hear about this for something else? Well, my sister was seeing um, a naturopathic doctor and she felt that right. she had seasonal affective disorder or something just because winters are really hard for her. And they're also yeah. really hard for me and my mom. So Right. She got the happy light first and then my parents bought it for me for Christmas and then my mom just bought one for herself. And so we're all using it now because it seems to be something that we're just easily affected by. Like in the summertime, mm-hmm. I love being outside and when it's sunny, I am a, such a different person from cloudy days mm. um, or especially those dreary, yeah. dreary rainy days that we have here in Vancouver. So. Sure. I've heard things in this sort of related about how light and sleep, light, light kind of affects sleep. And there's something about sort of like the, the color of light. Is that something I've, I've heard? Is that true? Is that a thing? 
Mm-hmm. It's a thing. Yeah. Blue light. So LED lights, et cetera. Those are, those are what keep you awake. Blue lights. Um, huh. That's more tied with melatonin. So light can suppress melatonin production. And remember that melatonin is your, your fire starter pistol. Sure, your pistol sure. That starts sleep. So yeah. if your melatonin doesn't kick in, then sleep doesn't really kick in. So it can suppress melatonin production and mm. that can actually impact you through the day. So starting off in the morning using light to your advantage. Also at bedtime, if you are going to use light, so I use a kick in on my Apple stuff. So I make sure that the lights dimmer. I have the tint on my glasses that blocks out some of the blue light. I have all of these things going on so that I'm not, I even use the dimmer during the day so that I'm mm. not, and I do notice that when I use it, it's better. Like my eyes don't feel as jittery. Mm. Um, so it's better for my eyes as well. But um, the best kind of color to use, if you're going to use one as a nightlight, would be red. That uh. has the least impact as opposed to blue light. Is that why a lot of the clock radios are red? Or is that just a, a fluke? A fluke? Because I noticed some of the, actually, I noticed some of the, the newer ones are, are blue. Um, but the old school you know, uh, clock radios, uh, seem to be red. Maybe they just don't have a clue. Um, <laughs> they might not. <laughs> yeah. I think that's one of the things that's popped up too with the book and sort of doing the research is, is the world health organization actually identified sleep deprivation as an epidemic. Oh. Um, it's, it's a major problem. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem is that our society doesn't do anything about it. So we things that's, you know, eight in the morning for high school students, even though we know the research tells us their body clocks are different and, yep. they need, you know, they're, they're going to go to sleep later. They need to sleep in. You know, we as a society reinforce uh, burnout. Mm-hmm. We love to hear stories about how you burn the midnight oil and how mm-hmm. you had to, you know, you didn't sleep because of this, this and this. And mm-hmm. so we reinforce sleep deprivation, but the effects that it has on your body and they've done research on different countries that have different sleep practices and it's amazing what can, what can happen when you don't sleep versus when you do sleep. And there's lots of differences just in even looking at longevity of life and life expectancy, um, heart attacks, mm. obesity, there's a lot that's tied into sleep deprivation. It's amazing. Yeah. One thing I, I've been enjoying sort of about my current life situation is uh, with working from home and having a, pretty flexible schedule is I don't use an alarm clock anymore. I, I, I now just get up when I get up. Um, and uh, I've, I found that to be nice. Um, is, 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 you know, is that something? Is that, because if you have an alarm clock, if you need an alarm clock, then obviously, then it seems, it seems obvious that you would be, if the alarm clock didn't go off, your body would want to sleep more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We all have that natural waking time, right? Yeah. So your alarm clock can actually interfere with your sleep cycles because right. you could be waking too early in your sleep cycle. Yeah. I, th- I think yeah. I have a problem. It is. Yeah. I think I have that problem. I'm like, I think I need to be waking up at eight. Like when I was on holidays, I was waking up at around eight every day. Um, but I wasn't going to bed much later. So, but I still feel like now I have my alarm clock back and I'm hitting snooze, still hitting snooze. Um, so mm-hmm. I need to shift it a little bit, at least shift my bedtime earlier so that I can get back yeah. to waking up at seven. That's what I've done for sleep. Like the changes I've made, caffeine, I've cut out after 11, whereas I used to do like a three or four o'clock coffee at Starbucks, finishing off my day, kind of finishing up my emails. I don't do that anymore. Well, pandemic wise, I don't do it anymore, but it, that's mm-hmm. a habit that I took out before that. 
um, the bedtime routine, really being aware of when I wind down and turn everything off and starting to read a little bit more. The physical activity in the day has been huge. Um, I share my sleep problems um, with families. You were kind of talking earlier about um, whether that like adds to your credibility or takes away from your credibility. But I think it's kind of like counseling. I mean, I've done counseling before too, where Mm. um, it resonated more for me when the counselor admitted like they had anxiety problems too Mm -hmm. versus somebody that's like, I know what to do about your problem, but I've never experienced it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I'm pretty open with the issues I have and I don't mind yawning in front of clients (laughs) and telling them (laughs) I've had a bad day because I think it takes the pressure off them too. Like you're not the only one and you're not alone in this and I get what you're going through and I'm not going to ask you to do things that are going to be too hard for you. Sure. Um, Like I get it. I get where you're at. I know what tired feels like Um, and I'm not going to hide it. There's nothing wrong with it. Let's just get it to a point where you function during the day. So we've talked a lot about, um, you know, uh, the biology and, and, uh, and, and, and kind of that piece, which I think is huge and a lot, and a lot of stuff that folks don't know about. And we've talked a lot about a little bit about kind of how you incorporate act into your practice. Are there some sort of specific, um, kind of behavior analytic, um, procedures and whatnot that are, you know, used specifically for sleep that maybe aren't used in other areas? Like what, what, what's the ABA stuff that, that's really specific to sleep? Like I've heard of things like, like, like what's like, what's a bedtime pass. And like I heard of that or there's timed visits or there's grow clock. These are all like jargon that I don't understand at all. The grow clock isn't a behavior analyst uh, analytic okay. thing. That one is more of a, well, I mean, you can use it as stimulus control. Like if, okay. if you're trying to teach that, but it is a hard one to teach. Um, there's usually a lot of other components that go into it first. Like what is a grow clock? Oh, a grow clock is, um, it's this star clock that someone created. There's a couple different versions of it, um, where it signals when to be in bed and when you can be up. So it's, I think it's blue and it's a star when it's time for bed and then it's a sun and it's yellow when it's time Ah. to be awake. Uh, so the child will know, okay, if it's yellow, I can get out of bed and go find mom and dad and I can start my morning. But usually there's a lot of other components involved to teach that discrimination. Usually you can't just put a grow clock in and it will work. Sometimes it does. Automatic, some kids, automatically they start doing it. Yeah, right, <laughs> some right. kids love that rule and it really helps them. But usually there's some other problems at play. And, and a bedtime pass, what's, what's, what's that mean? I know there's a lot of these things out there. I'm not, I'm not going to list off every, every technique I've ever heard that of. That one's Pat Freiman. This, this yeah, this is the one I've heard of and I, and, and, and uh, it sounds like a way to skip going to bed. Um, but, uh. <laughs> yeah, a bedtime pass is kind of cool. So basically it's the issue you're tackling there is the child that, you know, all of a sudden is dying of thirst at bedtime. Yeah. Um, absolutely needs that fifth book. Now sure. has to pee. Yeah, and yeah. needs you to come back and do this thing. It's sort of for that problem where um, there's a lot of reasons why I can't sleep. And so the bedtime pass is um, basically a child has these tickets and each time you come in, they give up a ticket. So they're, they have to give you a ticket. Uh, gotcha. The idea is if you wake up with a certain amount of tickets, you and there's variations of it, you earn access to something, you get a prize or you get something or other. I did it with my oldest. Yep. And it was six. It worked. Yeah, I did it across a couple of weeks and it worked really well. And what the research kind of showed was that kids will often their tickets so they won't actually use them at all even right. though they may have some leeway like you can use one um yep. they won't they'll yep. hang on to those tickets for dear life yeah um so 
it's a, it's effective for sure. And I think has to be a good fit. I know I suggested on one Facebook group to a parent and that parent then got inundated with um, messages around attachment and how dare you do that to a child and you're ignoring the child's needs when you do that. And I'm sure there's validity to some of that when it comes sure. to its usage, but <laughs> essentially um, what you're trying to do is reinforce in bed behavior. Mm-hmm. So stay in bed because that's where you need to be. And that's what will help you sleep. Um, if you're so focused on getting out of bed and trying to get other things, you're not in a place for sleep. So it's building up that stimulus control, which is mm-hmm. a huge piece of sleep and making sure all conditions are in place to cue you for sleep. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's, it's not just a, I get to skip bedtime tonight. Uh, oh no, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's a stay in bed. Yeah. <laughs> it's a stay in bed intervention. Right. Um, right, same right. Time-based visiting, which is a, a form of non-contingent reinforcement. It's, you know, reinforcements delivered to you when you're staying in bed. Gotcha. It's on a timed schedule. Um, that's quite successful as well. And so that's like the parent kind of coming into the room sort of randomly or whatever, but not, not when they're getting called versus when they're getting called. It's different than bedtime fading. It's different with other versions. Again, there's different versions of interventions. It's yep. more, it's more based on non-contingent. I'm coming in on a set schedule regardless of what's happening. And yeah. the idea is um, staying in bed means you get the better version of me coming in. Getting out of bed means you get the other version of me, the more, you know, let's just get back into bed, quick talk and I'm out kind of version. How much different is, because I, I mean, I, you know, Greg Hanley is amazing in a whole bunch of ways and, and really popular right now. So he's sort of being the go-to for everything. But how much different is sort of his approach versus Fryman's approach versus Duran's approach? Like, it seems like there's 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 sort of these, you know, I, I've seen bedtime baths, I've seen time visits, I've seen that um, that one where you, uh, uh, what's it called, where you basically go to bed an hour later or something like that and try to change, change your clock or whatever. Like I've seen those, what is that called something? What's that called by the way? Bedtime fading. Is that? Thank you. Is that it? Yeah. Um, and so I've, but I, this seems to be the sort of the, the same kinds of things across these different folks. Um, do they, are, are they all that different? The approaches? Like if you went to, if you took the Duran approach versus the Hanley approach versus the fireman approach to try to get your kid to go it to all, bed? It all comes yeah. back to function. What right. is, like, you have to do a functional assessment, and that's really what the interview is, is what is the problem, and then how are we going to address it? Right. I think that's the case with any sleep intervention. Even when you read Dr. Kenapari's stuff, he, he's not a behavior analyst. He's mm. a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. Um, but he talks about habit loops, and he, mm-hmm. you know, he talks about why is somebody doing something. Mm-hmm. And he lists out interventions in his book. And I read other people's sleep stuff outside of behavior analysts because mm-hmm. I want to know what they're saying. And I... There's different research in different areas, but they all come down to why is somebody doing something and how do you make it so that they're not meeting reinforcement? So there's always some form of extinction, but at the mm-hmm. same time, how do you teach proper sleep habits and how do you teach them? How do you teach their body to cue mm-hmm. to sleep and to fall asleep? So the science itself doesn't change. The reinforcer in all cases is always sleep. It's mm-hmm. how do you manipulate the A part? What interventions do you put in place to increase the saliency of all of those sleep cues so that somebody mm-hmm. falls asleep quickly? Um, so whether or not, I think it's all about presentation. You know, when mm-hmm. you listen to Pat Friedman versus Greg Hanley talk, they have different presentation styles, mm-hmm. different stories that they tell, um, et cetera. So part of it, I think, comes down to presentation. We listened mm-hmm. to Dr. Durant too. He attended BC Abba years ago. Yep. Talk about sleep. I remember that. 
I think they all just have different presentation styles, but yeah. the information isn't all that different because they're based on the same principles. They're based on the same procedures. Mm. It's just, there may be variations. And I think there always has to be variations. I think I guess that goes back to one of the other most common questions we get, or at least I've gotten is, can you recommend an article so that I can mm-hmm. fix this? Yes. Um, you know, here's this issue. My, one of my clients is having, can you recommend an article? My answer is yes. no, I can't. Um, no one article is going to fix this. And that goes back to, um, is there an article for this? Right. Maybe not. <laughs> you, yeah. you need to know enough about sleep and enough about our science to tie the two together to individually plan for what's going on with your client, but no one article will fix anything. Well, and I think this speaks to the the greater point of the conversation you and I had, Hillary, around mentorship and competence and whatnot. Um, In that, and, 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 you know, and I, I was, I was going to actually ask the same question, not what article, but what book, Um, uh, because, I think there's a lot of folks out there that aren't going to either a aren't going to come to you too, um, you know, and I'm thinking sort of from a local perspective necessarily aren't going to refer out to you too, um, and are going to try and do it themselves. Um, you know, and, and they and, and they'll be behavior analysts and they'll have lots of skills and whatnot and they'll, they'll grab the research and grab or, or grab the Duran book. Uh, I, I, I realized Duran's, I guess Hanley and Fryman didn't write a book, just Duran, right? Um, um, which is probably why. Oh, Fryman um, does have a book. It's very, oh, it par- yeah, it's very parent uh, friendly. Oh, it's an easy, I didn't know that. it's an easy read. Oh, very good. Okay. I'll, I'll look for that. Um, and so, yeah. And so you need to get like a parent friendly kind of book like that from Fryman. Um, like what are the risks of say, a parent using that book to get their kids to sleep? Or what are the risks of, of me using the Duran book to get my clients to sleep versus, you know, getting the mentorship, getting the, and building the competence and reading the outside journals and so on and so forth. I think it depends on the sleep problem. Hanley's stuff, his, his section of his website on sleep is meant to be for parents to use on their own. Mm. And I know parents that have done that. They've gone mm-hmm. on there, gotten the information they needed, gone through the interview for him and tackled their own sleep problems. So I don't think that's a problem necessarily. I think there are sleep problems that can likely be resolved Mm -hmm. um, fairly easily if you go, if you know the process to go through, if you have the information that you need, and if you understand all the information that you're being given. Mm -hmm. I think there's a risk when anyone thinks they know everything and tries to tackle everything, particularly with sleep. I think if there's underlying issues going on, that are a little bit more complex and you try to tackle it based on a book you've read or an article that you've read, Mm -hmm. there's a possibility that sleep can get worse. There's a possibility that a parent can have a negative experience with sleep training and then not seek out help otherwise, because I tried that and it didn't work. I think there's always a risk as behavior analysts when you try something that you're not fully confident on or that you're maybe going on sort of surface level information that will do more harm than good. There's always that risk. No, that makes sense. And I mean, and, 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 and I, I think we'll, we'll save the, any more questions on this for folks to sort of listen to the other episode. Uh, but it, it, you know, I, I guess I'm just sort of, why bother getting mentorship? You know, <laughs> you know, uh, when I can just go, when I can just go spend 1095 on a book, um, and, and try to figure it out myself. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm doing this, but I'm thinking of just the, the people out there that, um, 
you know, uh, because there's a lot of folks out there that, you know, that, that sort of have that belief that you're, you're a BCBA and everything is behavior, so you can do anything. And especially if I have the book, you know, <laughs> now, now I'm a super expert because I've got the book. But I mean, I think you've touched on a whole lot of points. There's a lot of points that you've touched on, particularly around the, you know, the medical side of things and the stuff from sort of other areas that you don't find in those books. I can speak to that because I did my graduate project on sleep and I read Mark Duran's oh, okay. book plus a lot of other articles. And I still hadn't tackled sleep with any of my clients yet. Um, I didn't feel comfortable. I was mm. like, there is no way, like just by reading these books, that I can go and implement these with my clients because I just, I just didn't feel confident. Um, mm. even, even though I did all the research and a presentation and answered questions around it, even when we, and when we did our mentorship, I realized I still didn't know everything. Mm. Um, enough to be able to individualize it to my client, analyze in the moment, and support families in a way that they needed. So, Well, uh, that, uh, if other young BCBAs are, 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 are like yourself, Nicole, that bodes well for our field. Um, uh, there, there's a, I, I think there's a lot of young folks out there that do feel like, um, you know, they can do no wrong. And, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I know for me, it's taken me, you know, a long time to sort of realize that, uh, uh, the, uh, and I like the line, I've seen a lot of Instagram memes and whatnot, but, uh, uh, the more I learn, the less I know. Uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and to be able to kind of grasp that early in your career, I think is, is powerful and important. So kudos to you. And I'm sure your mentorship from Hillary, uh, helped you kind of shape that that sort of process as well so well but, but i guess as we as we kind of go to finish off is there sort of anything you know any kind of important sort of tips you might want to share with folks that are that are that are listening it's going to be mostly behavior analysts i think that are kind of paying attention to this thing anything you'd want to kind of kind of let them know i'd say feel free to reach out at any time i think working together and We've learned that as working together with our community has made us better practitioners. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we are always send a DM, Facebook message, emails. We're we're there on the other end. Fantastic. All right. Well, I'm going to be sharing certainly all the resources we talked about today um, um, uh, on, in the show notes. Um, I'll have links to, of course, your your company and you, both of your, your Instagrams and whatnot and anything else you guys might want to share uh, so folks can easily find you. Um, and I'm sure most folks that are listening uh, right now will already uh, have a pretty good idea who the two of you are. Um, and so that's awesome. So thanks again for being on the show. Um, super awesome. Uh, super cool just to tap into uh, the amazing specialties we have right in our kind of home community here. It's amazing uh, how many folks we have that are actually specializing, which I think is really important. I, I kind of touching on your initial point there, Hillary, that you kind of felt you, 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 you had your hands in a lot of pots and, and felt that, you know, it would, it makes a lot, you know, it, it makes good sense to kind of focus that. I, I think this, I think this should be sort of the go-to for every behavior analyst. Let's all specialize in some area and then we can all kind of, you know, be experts and bounce off each other. So I think that's awesome that you guys are doing this and, and puts a lot of pressure on you too. You know, um, um, you know, it's, it, I, I think it's, some people might call it a cop out, but I think it's, I think it's nice to be able to, you know, confidently say, I don't have competence in this area, but I know someone that does and they're just down the road. So, 
um, I'm going to give you their number and, and they'll be able to help you out. Um, and versus, you know, having to know everything. So I think that's great. Um, yeah. So thanks again for being on here. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, just wonderful to have you both.